Welcome to the Rhodes Church Podcast. We are so excited to connect with you. We hope that this podcast builds your faith and that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. All right, I want to talk briefly this morning just to kind of intro a little bit about the validity of Jesus as the Messiah or the Son of God. He is the focal point of everything. This is Resurrection Sunday, so this time of year, Passover, the emphasis is on Jesus. You're like, well, it should be every Sunday, absolutely, but obviously this many people don't normally come every Sunday. And so when you have an opportunity like this, you either uh, can take one of two different directions. And I'm going to choose to take the directions of we're not promoting the Rhodes Church. We're not talking about how great our church is. And this is not an audition for you to come to our church. Here's what we're doing. We're wanting to take an opportunity to exalt and magnify Jesus, that he is the one. He's the king. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the one you should devote your life to. And where you go after that is between you and him. But I want to focus on him because it's easy to have a gospel message that is merely conceptual in practice. And we get caught up in principles and precepts and religious rituals. And we never know the person that the gospel represents. Oftentimes the gospel can be so us focused, you know, that we get, uh, we don't know the person that, that the gospel is truly the source of what the message of the gospel is about. And so it can be thought that the church is about what will God do for us, how he bless us, how will he encourage us, what do I, kind of what do I get out of this type of mentality? And that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus, he is the focal point, and he is the savior. There was a real physical man named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. It was not just a Bible story. We'll give you some historical facts. He was raised in Nazareth, began a ministry at 30 years of age, and due to unprecedented teaching with authority and the performing of miracles, he developed a following of of people and became a threat and an enemy to the religious leaders of the day to the extent that they wanted to kill him. And so he was sentenced by Pontius Pilate, who was a ruler in the Roman government at the time, at the request of the Jewish leaders to be crucified on a Roman cross in 30 AD. His body was given to a man named Joseph of Arimathea to be buried in a new tomb in the garden in the place where he was crucified. This, uh, these sto- this facts, these things that I've just laid out to you, these are historical facts that are indisputable. All of those things happen. Where it gets, begins to go in different directions and what people believe is what happened after he went into that tomb. Everybody historically can, can prove that there was a man named Jesus that was crucified in Rome in 30 AD. Whether he was the Messiah or the Son of God or not, people can dispute that, but they cannot dispute that a man was crucified and buried in a tomb. Where it gets a little fuzzy after that for some people is that the tomb was opened and the man is no longer in there. So what happened to the man? Look what it says here in verse 44 of Luke chapter 24. It says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you. This is Jesus talking. While I was still with you. So this is after he rose from the dead. After he was resurrected, already came out of, the, out of the tomb, and he appeared to over 500 people after he rose from the dead. So he says these words to the disciples. These are his last parting words here. 
which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Here's what he was saying. Everything that was written about me in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, everything that was written about the Messiah in the law of Moses, in the Psalms, which is the books of poetry, include uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then also in the prophets, which would be the major and minor prophets. He's saying everything that was written about me, all the, all the prophecies about the coming Messiah, which is a Jewish fact, that all of these prophecies were about the Messiah is coming. And he said everything that was written about me in the New Testament, I had to fulfill them. What does that mean? The word fulfill here means to meet or satisfy all requirements or expectations. Here's what Jesus was saying. Every prophecy that was ever written about me over a 4,000 year time frame, every prophecy, I fulfilled every single one of them. You're like, so? Okay, let me give you a little, some stats. These messianic prophecies, mathematician Peter Stoner counted the probability of one person fulfilling even eight of them. So these, they took the eight most popular prophecies of the coming Messiah, like where he was born, where he'd live, where he'd be raised, how he would die. He, he picked up these eight prophecies and he said the probability of one person fulfilling all eight of them, every single one of them, is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros. That's one in 100 quadrillion. Still not impressing you. That's okay. <laughs> Only talking about eight of them. So how do we illustrate? What is one in 100 quadrillion? Because that just seems like a made up number. There it is. That many zeros. He illustrated, Peter illustrated this. He said, it's like imagine taking a silver dollar one silver dollar, putting it on the ground, edge to edge, and covering the entire state of Texas. Not White County, not Wabash County, not, not, not any of those. Not McCopin County, it's for my Carlinville people, they're going crazy there, McCopin County. See, but the state of, state of Texas, two feet deep, that's as high as my knees, across the state of Texas of silver dollars. And you take one of those silver dollars and you mark an X on it. And then you put all those quadrillion silver dollars and shake them up in a big pile and you ask someone to come pick one, and it has to be the one with the X on it. Those are the odds that one person could fulfill eight of the prophecies of the Messiah. Maybe that doesn't do to you what it does to me. I can't imagine that many silver dollars across the state of Texas. I can't imagine a room of this size full of silver dollars two feet deep, and I pick out one of them. He also said that if, if he would, a single man would fulfill 48 of the prophecies of the Old Testament, it would be the same as the odds of one in 10 to the 157th power. 
For 48 of them. That's that number right there. There's 157 zeros. I did it myself. I have no idea what that number is, but that's a lot. That's for 48 of them. Guess how many Jesus fulfilled? Most theologians believe he fulfilled over 300, as many as 350 prophecies. So anyway, that's pretty cool. Verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary. Here's what, here, get this. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary for Jesus to come and die, the Messiah, to come and die and rise from the dead in the third day. It was necessary for that to happen. Verse 47, and, look what Jesus says, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Here's the message that Jesus said he wants you to preach. He didn't say, I want you to go preach whatever will make people happy. He said, I don't want you to go preach what will get people to come and sit in your church. That's not what he said to preach. I want you to preach two things. I want you to repeat, preach repentance. Oh, isn't that kind of old? No, it's Jesus. Preach repentance. What does that mean, repentance? It's the Greek word metanoia. It means a change of mind, heart, and behavior to line up with what God says about any situation. Repentance is not an apology. Repentance is not I'm sorry. Repentance is not I got caught so I feel bad. Repentance is changing my mind, my heart, and my behavior to say it doesn't matter what I think, what God says is right, is right. That's repentance. Repentance is not, well, I'm just really struggling. Repentance is I change my mind, my heart, and my behavior. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I'm never going to slip. It just means I've changed my mind. That is not okay anymore. I'm not justifying my sin. I'm not, I'm not uh, justifying what I'm doing. I'm saying that is wrong. What Jesus said is right. That's repentance. He said, preach that. John the Baptist preached this in Matthew chapter 3. These are the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Repent. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, when he came preaching and speaking, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter came. And the first message he preached after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, it says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he said, I want you to preach two things, repentance and secondly, remission of sins. What is that? Remission of sins. The word remission there means to release from obligation or debt, freedom, pardon, deliverance, and forgiveness. I want you to preach repentance, change of mind, heart, and behavior that God's way is right. Then I want you to preach remission of sins. What's that look like? In Colossians chapter 2, Paul explains it this way, and he says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we were dead in sin. He, Jesus, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out, everybody say wiped out. Wiped out, that means to eliminate, to remove, to obliterate any evidence. 
He obliterated the handwriting requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There were requirements for us to get into heaven. What were the requirements? A sinless life. Oops. I don't know about you, but I can't do that. But that's the requirement. Why is that the requirement? Because it's God's heaven, and we sang about it over and over and over, that he is holy. What does that mean? It's more than a song lyric. It's not just a cool lyric. Holy, holy. No. He's holy as in he's pure. Like there's no sin in him, and no sin can even come close to him. So here's the requirements. If you want to come to me, you have to be free from sin. Oops, we can't come. He said, hmm, what am I going to do? Jesus said, I will go. Father, I will go. I will leave heaven and I will humble myself and take on the form of my own creation. I will be born of a virgin woman and I will live a sinless life. I will be nailed to the cross and all of the sins of past, present, and future humanity. Put them on me, Father. I will pay for Chad's sins. This is remission of sins. Now, all of the requirements that were against Chad's life, they've been obliterated. Why? Because Jesus paid for them. Not because he just gave me a pass and said, hey, don't worry about it, Chad. Now you're under grace, so it doesn't matter what you do. That's not what what he's doing with remission of sins. Remission of sins required a payment. Somebody had to pay for me. And Jesus paid for it all. So he said, I want you to preach two things. I want you to preach repentance and remission of sins. He said, I will provide the remission of sins, but you you have to provide the repentance. God can't repent for me. But he did what I could never do. He provided remission of sin for me. So now do I get in based on my works? No, I get in based on what Jesus did on the cross through him. All right, so let's look at that. That's what he said to preach. Now let's jump down, uh, jump down to verse 50 for time's sake. And he led them out. So after he said these words, he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Come on, this is the real guy walking on the earth, was crucified, rose from the dead. Now he's talking to his disciples, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he starts levitating up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now flip over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 could be 2 Luke. Because I don't know if you know this, but Acts was written by Luke, the same person, the same physician, doctor, disciple who wrote the book of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 1 is a continuation of Luke chapter 24. They go hand in hand. In verses 4 through 8, this is when he was lifting his hands and blessing him, blessing them. These are some of the things that he was telling them about John baptizing with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, all of that. I want to jump to verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Where did they come from? They just showed up. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Because Jesus just floated up in the sky, that's why. <laughs> I think it's kind of self-explanatory while I'm looking up. But anyway, they said, here's what they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The same way he went up is the same way he's coming down. So what happened to him? Where did he go? He was with them. He's eating fish with them one moment. And all of a sudden, he's just flying up into the air. Does anybody else find that a little weird? Where did he go? Is he sitting on a cloud up there? Where's he at? Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read this before I show my other. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12. Where, where did Jesus go? Verse 1 says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's going to require endurance to run this race. How do we run this race with endurance? We do it by doing the next word, by looking unto Jesus, by focusing our attention on Jesus and not looking anywhere else, but focusing our gaze on him, the author or the initiator, the originator and finisher, the completer of our faith. You know, Jesus is the greatest closer in the history of the world. He's a finisher. He closed the deal in our salvation. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what was some of his last words? He said, it is finished. What does that mean? The deal, the separation between God and man was over. Jesus had brought peace between God and man. He finished it. He finished what he was called to do. He's the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross. It wasn't a pleasure cruise for him, but he endured it for me and for you. Despising the shame, and this next part, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, crucified, resurrected, began to ascend up into heaven. Now he's seated down at the right hand of the throne of God. So where did Jesus go? When he ascended, where did he go? He went into heaven and he's seated. If this is the throne of the Father in heaven, Jesus is at the right hand. So Jesus was in the physical, eating fish, hanging out with them. They could touch him. They could touch his nail-pierced hands and feet and his side, all of that. They could touch all of that. But now he just goes up into heaven. Where is he? I see all of you right now. You look amazing. Where did you go? Are you still there? but I can't see you. Are you real? But I can't see you. Are you legit? Too legit? Are you too legit to quit? Sorry. <laughs> no, are, are you real? Are you still there? 
but I can't see you. So if I can't see you, you must not be real. What's happening? There is a veil between eternity and time. Where we live is the temporary world. The Bible tells you this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Because the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are unseen are eternal. There is a veil right now between where Jesus is and where he was. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. This is why you have to be careful. Don't send me an email, please. This is why you have to be careful teaching your kids the reality of invisible things that aren't real. Do what you want. I'm just saying be careful because they can begin to think that Jesus is just like anything else that if it's not real, if I can't see it. But there's coming a time when this veil is going to be taken away and we will see, oh my goodness, there are angels, there is Jesus, there is a father. Wow! Wow! All that stuff in the Bible, it's real. There's a tree of life and there's rivers and what? I had no idea. There's demons. What? But right now we live like this. And every once in a while, through the Holy Spirit, we can see into that realm. But here's the problem. We believe too much that because we can't see it, it's not real. And I want to ask you quickly today, where Jesus went, he's sitting on a throne beside the throne of the Father. Someday, this veil is going to be taken away from you and from me, and we will see him. We will see him like we see each other. I will see see Jesus. I try to imagine it. I, I want it so bad. I was here early this morning saying, Jesus, can I have a peek? I want to see it. I want every funeral I do, there's a little bit of jealousy. I'm like, they get to see it, but let me, let me I don't digress. Hebrews chapter nine says, and there's appointed for men to die. And once after this, but after this, the judgment. Here's my question for you, and I'm going to build towards this as we close. Are you prepared to stand before the throne? Are you prepared? Two thrones that I want to talk about. Go to Revelation chapter 20. You and I are going to see Jesus someday. You're like, I don't believe in that. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's going to happen. I don't mean that arrogantly. I'm just saying it's almost, you're just going to do it. You're, you're going to do it. You're going to stand before God. And, and so I want you to be prepared when you go to stand before him. I want you to know the, the 411 about what's going to happen because we have options, okay? Revelation chapter 20. Holy Spirit, help me. I'm going to speed through this. Then I saw a great white throne. Uh-oh, great white throne. Remember those three words, great white throne. 
and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books, plural, were opened. Mm. And another book, that would mean different from the books. Are you with me? Making sure we're reading the Bible together. So books were open, multiple, and another book was open. Another seems singular to me. I'm not an English major, took some classes. So another book. So we got books and another book. The another book was called the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their what? By the things which were written in the books. Not by the things written in the book. Come on, work with me here. They were judged according to their works that were all written in these books. Bunch of books for a bunch of works. They're standing before God and they're judged according to what's written in those books. Just building a case. Oh, Jesus. The de- then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is not a hot tub. This is the real deal. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, the one book, was cast into the lake of fire. So it sounds to me like it's really important to be written in the book, regardless of what it says in the books. I know where we're going. So I get excited. Sorry, that was totally unnecessary. (laughs) So, (sighs) the great white throne of judgment, these are people that their names were not written in the book, so they were judged according to the books of what was written about their works. Everything they did was in the books. And because their name is not in this one book, the evidence in these books, they get cast into the lake of fire for eternity. That's a lot longer than those zeros. Now let's go go to Romans chapter 14. Remember that, great white throne of judgment, Romans chapter 14. Come on, turn faster. (laughs) Romans chapter 14. You guys are the best people in the world. Romans chapter 14, look at verse 10. Mm -hmm. Yep. But But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Hold on different throne. There was great white throne. 
This is the judgment seat of Christ. What's the difference? Glad you asked. Let's read on. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Is that only talking about Christians? No. Everybody will bow to Jesus. Jesus, remember, he's seated at the right hand of God. Every knee will bow to him. Why? Because he's not a story in the Bible. He's king. He's king. He's the creator of the world. You're like, well, I don't believe that. That's okay. But I want you to see some things here, and I believe God's going to make himself real to you. Verse 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Every single one of us will have to give an account to God. Everybody. I want, to, I want to challenge some of your theology on just a moment. Some people, you get taught that, well, when I die, I'm just going to go to heaven. I'm just going to hang out with my relatives, and it's just all going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. The Bible says that we will all have to stand before Jesus and give an account for our life. Isn't that for the heathens? That's for everybody. Everybody. We'll have to answer to him. Judgment seat of Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Mm, it's getting good. Verse 9. Come on, faster. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Yeah, for we must all, for we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. What's that mean? While we were alive. The things we did while we're alive, we will have to receive according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Time out. You know what the terror of the Lord means? That means a fear of God. Well, I just don't believe in fear. I don't either. But I believe in reverence. So I, I believe we're too cavalier with the presence of God. I say I believe we're too cavalier with who God is. He is holy. And he says, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. But we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Why do we persuade people to give their life to Jesus? Because the terror, the fear of God. People say, well, I don't think it's any big deal. I don't, I'm not afraid of God. How come every person in the Bible that even came in contact with an angel fell on the ground and said, oh, forgive me, I'm afraid. They fell in fear. That's just seeing an angel. Imagine seeing the presence of God. One other one, one other one. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is not on the screen. This is an impromptu during worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you don't have your Bibles, cheat off your neighbor. Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Hear this verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation to build on. 
Look what it says. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus Christ with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work, each one's works will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. But if anyone's work which he has built on and endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Last scripture, go to Revelation chapter 22. I'm breaking every church growth strategy right now by reading way too many verses of the Bible. I really don't care about growing the church. I care about growing you in your relationship with Jesus. I don't want to bring you some, some sugar. You got plenty of that in your basket today. Go home, eat some chocolate, some peanut butter eggs. Glory to God. I receive that now in Jesus' name. Come on, stay focused. 22. I can't wait for those peanut butter eggs. Why don't you have them year round? Verse 12. And behold, verse 12, Jesus speaking. He says, and behold, I'm coming quickly. Where's he coming from? He's coming from the right hand of the Father. I'm coming. Boom. There's coming a time when the veil's going to be torn and the eternity side is going to be split. And Jesus is going to step into time riding on a horse and saying, hello, I'm here. And every eye will see him. <laughs> and when every eye sees him, they will say these words. Oh my goodness, it's true. Everything they said, all that churchy stuff, he's real. And when you see him, I promise you, when you see him, everything else in this world will pale in comparison. All the stuff that we valued over him, in that moment, you'll be like, what was I thinking? In that moment, you'll be like, what in the world was I thinking? What was I thinking? Why, why did I put all my time and treasure and value in that thing? When I see him, I'm telling you, when you see him, everything else will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his, blessed are those who do whose commandments? His do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Who gets to enter through the gates into the city? Those who do his commandments. It's God's heaven. It's his rules. I don't get a say-so on how I get in. I don't get to go to God all cocky and say, listen, I think I ought to get in because I believe this way theologically. He doesn't care how I believe theologically. He cares how it is. Well, I just feel like, Lord, I would have come, but I've been hurt, and I had some things happen, so therefore I think I should get a pass because you don't understand how hard my life has been. It's his heaven. It's his rules. His rules is there's one way. What's the one way? Jesus. Jesus. So he says, but outside of the city are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie, 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He was saying, I am the Messiah. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come, Jesus. And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Let me close with this. Someday, maybe, maybe you die before Jesus comes back. Either way, you're going to go from this to this the moment you stop breathing. The moment you stop breathing, everything you thought was reality will be overwhelmed by a new reality that's bigger than anything you've ever seen before. It'll happen like that. Or, if we should still be alive when he comes back, it will be like this, that all of a sudden we will hear a sound and Jesus will show up coming out of the east. And the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him to meet him in the air. Even in that moment, we will go from, man, I believe this stuff, Lord, but I can't see you. I believe what you say, but I can't see you. In that moment, it will become like that. And I will go, yes! But it's not over. It's not over. Because I still have to stand before God. The question is, which throne will you stand before? You're going to stand before one of them. Either the great white throne of judgment where all the books with all your works are written down everything you did, good and bad. And one other book, the book of life. The reason I will stand before the great white throne of judgment is if I reject representation by Jesus. Do you know how in court you can choose to represent yourself? The people who say, I don't need Jesus, that's for weak people. I'll take care of my own life. That's wonderful. God will let you do that. But when you stand before him, you will have to represent yourself. And the only thing you will be able to provide as evidence are the books with everything written in them that you have ever done. All of them, they will be the only evidence submitted in your case. And you will not go up there arrogantly and say, hey, what's up, God? Where's heaven at? When he starts reading off the books, your head will drop lower and lower and lower. Because you will realize that our righteousness is filthy rags to him. And with my face plastered on the ground, knowing that I'm condemned by my own works, he will say, wait, let me check and see. Let me look in the other book. Because I believe we're going to have the same experience. It may not play out like this, so you just study it out for yourself. But if I even, let's say, even standing before the judgment seat of Christ, all of my works, I will have to answer for what I've done. 
And he will say, Chet, you built on wood and hay and stubble. You didn't value me first in these situations. So all these things will be burned up in a moment because I didn't value the eternal. I valued the temporal. And my head drops lower and lower. I've said, oh, I wasted so much time. He will mention some good things. He will say you did this and that. But the things that I wasted time on, I will feel overwhelmed. But then he'll say, hang on, Jack. Let me look in the other book. And he goes through and he says, ah, good news, son. Your name was not blotted out of the book of life. So everything you did has been covered by the blood of Jesus. All of your sins are washed away. You enter into the joy of the Lord. Not based on what I done. What I did condemned me. But Jesus stepped in and said, Father, he's one of mine. I'm representing him. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. I paid for Chad's sin. Let him in. Let him in. <laughs> now, listen, that sounds wonderful, but that will not be everybody's story. Because the ones who thought it was all a bunch of hooey said, oh, I got time. That's what old people worry about. You old people worry about that heaven stuff. I'm fine. I'm young. I'm, I got some stuff I need to experience. I need to live my own life. I would love to tell you about all of the people that are still young that I did their funeral. That I'm certain they thought they had more time. They would have said, well, I, I, I didn't even get to go to college. To experience college. Or maybe while they were experiencing college... Their life was snuffed out. They will stand. If they did not choose Jesus, they will stand there and they will have to represent themselves and they will be, all of their works will be read out and then the Father will look and say, or Jesus will look, Father, and say, uh, is their name written in the book? And Jesus will have to say, Father, because this is biblical, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. What does that mean? If I deny Jesus as my Savior here on this earth, then when it comes time, the Father will say, Jesus, is he one of yours? Sorry, Father. He never accepted the free gift of salvation. His sins are not forgiven because he did not repent. And the Father will say, according to your works, your sentence is to be cast into the lake of fire. People will say, well, it's not fair. It will be just. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to give, please visit us at theroads.church. To stay connected, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch our latest sermons.